Hi there, I'm Anna. And I'm Anton. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. Before we get started and introduce our surgeon, we also have a guest host alongside us today, Sasha. She is our Director of Global Surgery at Sergio for 2022. Great to have you here, Sasha. Hey guys, excited to be here. In this episode, we will be interviewing Professor Helvig Drobitz, an orthopaedic trauma surgeon based in Lismore, who works with MSF in humanitarian aid. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Maybe we could start by hearing a little bit about yourself, your medical training, and your background. So, um, you will be surprised, but I'm actually not originally from Australia, um, despite my true blue, impeccable Australian accent. Um, I'm originally from Austria. I've been here for 18 years. I can't get rid of the accent, unfortunately. Um, and I am a, a trauma surgeon which is a specialty that uh, we had in uh, Central Europe in the until about 2000. So trauma surgeon means we deal with everything that bleeds. We have to rotate through uh, neurosurgery, vascular surgery, thoracic surgery. But our main business is orthopedic trauma surgery because 70% of all injuries are orthopedic uh, uh, injuries. So I'm super specialized in orthopedic trauma, and that's why in Australia I'm working as a as an orthopedic surgeon, um, and I'm registered as an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, trauma surgery means that you can stop the bleeding basically from wherever it comes from, uh, but you're not specifically good in anything. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> half good in everything. Um, that's what we train. Bit of a generalist. Yes. Yes. I'm curious, just with the training in Europe, you said that they've stopped training trauma surgeons now. What was the decision behind that? Uh, they don't do this anymore because uh, uh, it, it has become too specialized. Um, so what happens now is that you, you become an orthopedic surgeon and then you can develop an interest in orthopedic trauma or you develop an interest in polytrauma, but you always, always are an orthopedic surgeon or you are a general surgeon. And when you're a general surgeon, then you do the abdominal trauma. And when you're a neurosurgeon, you do the neurotrauma. In my time, we learned to do all the trauma. But because it's so specialized now, and because Austria is such a small country, there's a hospital every 20 kilometers. We have specialists everywhere. So we don't need this model anymore. So now it's more like the Australian system? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, is that what prompted the move to Australia? No, 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 no. I just came to Australia with my family in 2004 for a fellowship for one year only. And then somehow we never bought a return ticket. Um, Fell in love with the place. Yeah, it was one year and another year and another year. And I spent a long time in northern Queensland. Spent uh, 14 years in Mackay. Oh, okay. oh, wow. What drew you there? Oh, it was just coincidence. Uh, we, we, we went to the Wit Sundays for a holiday mm. and I heard there's a job in Mackay. So I rocked up at the Mackay Base Hospital, uh, singlet, board shorts, long hair. And they must have been quite desperate because they employed me. <laughs> and that's when we stayed there for 14 years. My wife's a GP. My uh, son grew up there. It was actually a really nice place. Oh, okay. Yeah. How did you find, um, your skills transition from Austria down into the Australian system? 
in Mackay it was good because in Mackay for years we were only two surgeons so we ran that place on a one in two roster and in Mackay it's it was quite isolated so the next major hospital was Townsville it's 400 kilometers to the north and then Brisbane is a thousand kilometers to the south so it was actually pretty isolated it was so my, my skill came in quite handy um, that I could deal with a multitude of trauma situations yeah, of course and so, I mean, why did you decide to go into trauma surgery specifically? Also coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> My life is full of coincidences. Um, I always wanted to become an anesthetist, actually, when I was a student. But then I started my internship in the Department of Trauma Surgery. And all these guys were really nice. And I worked quite a lot, so to not to disappoint them. And then after about three months, the boss called me and said, don't you want to become a trauma surgeon? I said, well, I don't know, I want to become an anesthetist and I don't really know how to even put a nail in the wall. I'm not very handy. And he said, no, 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 come on, become a trauma surgeon. We teach you how to put a nail in the wall as well. So that's how I became a trauma surgeon. Um, it was all coincidence. And then your decision, obviously, to go into orthopedics here perhaps was an extension of the majority of what you saw? Yeah, because it's the most... That it's the closest to um, trauma surgery. Orthopedic surgery is the closest to trauma surgery. So um, um, I, I can do some abdominal and general surgery, but mainly we did orthopedic trauma surgery. We also did all the sports injuries, ACLs, shoulder injuries, and we did post-traumatic joint replacement. So that's why my specialty was the closest to trauma to, to uh, orthopedic surgery. That's why I'm recognized as an orthopedic surgeon in Australia. Okay. So actually, is there any scope of operations that an orthopod normally won't do that you're allowed to do because of that uh, scope that you've had in your training? Uh, not really, not really. It doesn't really, I think in Australia, as far as I know, it's the hospital that decides okay. what you are allowed and what you can do. So the hospital accreditation committee uh, decides whether you can do general orthopedics plus pediatric orthopedics. And it depends on your qualifications and your training. Okay. So like the facilities of the hospital, what they can mm. accommodate. Mm. So you've also completed a large number of extra qualifications and short courses throughout your career. Um, have those been helpful, I guess, with furthering your career? The one thing I did that was painful was I did a PhD. Um, and when I did my PhD, there was about, I don't know, 15 in Australia who had a PhD, orthopedic surgeons. Now it's way more. And that's a really painful procedure. It's like giving birth to a very big child <laughs> over six years <laughs> wow, it's very painful yeah. yes it's very painful but it's also interesting because you become good in one subject and you become an authority in one subject and you uh, develop an, a research interest in one subject so why did you make the choice to do a phd oh, i was just interested and we in austria we invented a special plate for wrist fractures and we were the first ones to use it and then initially they told us it's not good and now it's the biggest selling plate in the world. So that's why <laughs> I, I was interested in the research aspect of it and is it really that good, is it bad, blah, blah, blah. So I did a lot of publications on that. Okay, so it was about uh, taking that previous research from Austria and making it standard practice globally. Uh, I, it wasn't me. I, we were just the first ones and then like lots of people jumped on it. But okay. I did my PhD in Australia. So I did, I started this research in Austria and then I did my PhD, my PhD in Australia with uh, James Cook University in uh, Townsville. 
And do you have any continuing research interests? Yes, now I'm at an age where I don't really have to do it all myself anymore. There's lots of junior doctors and students <laughs> who do the work. So last year we did publish uh, on COVID uh, problems and uh, COVID and trauma and COVID and fracture clinic because we had to close our fracture clinic, had to do it via telephone. We also saw way more trauma coming in during the first lockdown. That's what we published. We developed, we didn't develop, but we we did some special operations for distal femur fractures, which I'm interested in as well, which we are trying to publish. There's always something. Did you find anything interesting you want to share with us from any of those? Uh, well, I don't know. In Australia, that, that it was really interesting that the first lockdown, at least in our region, in Lismore, in the Northern Rivers, uh, caused uh, uh, an increase in trauma presentations. And that's probably because everybody lives on a farm and there's lots of space and they have horses and they have a chainsaw, which they now can use because they don't have to work and they can stay at home. So the kids were at home. So that's why there's way more trauma. And the other thing was we did run our fracture clinic via telephone. So we did telehealth, but the special thing about it was that we ran it via uh, telephone. And that worked actually really well. So we didn't have more complications. We didn't have more people coming back. Um, people were quite happy that they didn't have to come to the hospital. So that actually worked quite well. And we could reduce the numbers by, I don't know, 30% or so. Do, um, do you see that being a trend into the future? Because I know like Northern Rivers, where you operate down in Lismore, massive mm -hmm. flooding. Mm -hmm. It would be a similar mm -hmm. thing to COVID lockdowns, people not being able to travel. It's probably something that we could employ more, definitely. And, and, and we try to make it standard that we give patients. So we have now a bone phone. All our doctors, our on-call doctor carries a phone number, which is always the same. So patients can ring this phone day and night. So we give them this number. If they have traumas, they can ring and we follow them up, uh, via telephone, via this number. So that's definitely something we can look into more, but it's also humans crave personal contact if i have to do another zoom conference or a zoom talk i'm not gonna do it <laughs> it's uh, it has been tough the last two years no conferences no going away blah 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 um i think we'd like to ask you some questions about your work with msf now so i'll bring sasha in to have a talk to you about that if that's all right mm -hmm. All right, so just starting with quite a nice broad question. Um, how would you describe your work and its impact on the people in each place that you've responded to? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, with MSF, we're talking about MSF, yes. So I've done, <clears throat> I've done three missions with MSF. So I've been to Syria and I've been to Gaza. Normally what I do is I go away once a year for two months. My hospital is so kind and my colleagues are so kind to give me two months off every year so I can take unpaid leave and I can take this as one big chunk and I can use this to go away with MSF. So that's I'm, I'm very privileged because I have a really nice uh, team uh, and, they, and they have to work more because I'm indulging in this. Um, so that's the first thing. It's, 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 uh, it's the minimum you should do when you go away with any humanitarian organization, I think, take some time off and do six to eight weeks. Otherwise, you come there, you need to find your feet, you do some operations, you get some complications and you leave again. That That's no help for anyone. Um, the missions were completely different. So in Syria, we had only acute cases. So we had somebody who stepped on a landmine or who 
got shot or who was burned with severe burns every day. Um, and it was only acute. While in Gaza, we only did, uh, not only, but in Gaza, we focused on reconstructive surgery. So we had people who got shot, who have chronic fractures, who have chronic osteomyelitis, who have been on crutches for six months, who have uh, fractures that don't heal, who have soft tissues that don't heal. And we got them and we did a lot of plastic surgery and uh, bone shortening, bone lengthening, bone grafts, blah, blah, blah. So these are two completely uh, different things. Um, the main difference was in Syria, I never slept because I was on call for six weeks. And in mm. Gaza, I always slept because we didn't do on calls. Um, the impact on the, on the people, it's not so much that you do spectacular operations. Yes, you do them as well, but this is not the goal because spectacular operations are often high risk operations. And what you don't want is you don't want to leave behind complications. So the impact is more on the, my colleagues there. In Syria, I did a lot of teaching. So I, I, I was, we were the first ones to do flaps for certain, uh, soft tissue problems in the lower limb. Um, and I, uh, I did a lot of organizing them and I did a lot of, uh, we, we, we installed a lot of guidelines, which hopefully are still in place. It's more these things. You always need to look for something that's sustainable. You, you shouldn't go and do a surgical mission against the people. You should go and try and find and do something that's sustainable. So that's something that you can leave behind. And in Gaza, it was similar. So I managed to organize uh, a program for them that allows them to plan these operations on the computer and not with paper and scissors, which they still do. Um, I allowed them to take some time off because these guys have been working. There's two doctors and they've been working for four years without holidays, seven days a week. So when I was there now, I just came back. Uh, from Gaza for eight weeks and I, I, they could take two or three weeks off because I uh, was there. So things like this. Um, you do some research there, which is really important. You try to put them on the map because they do amazing things and nobody knows about it. Hmm. Right? You try to start a library for them or you try to start uh, connections for them that they can contact other people in other time, uh, parts of the world. They have no contact to anywhere. You know, yes, they also have internet, but they don't know who to contact. It's more like this. Okay, so it's about ensuring you have a sustainable focus. Yes. Going there more with the intent to bring your skills um, and supplement the skills that the national mm. team there has mm. um, through teaching and mm. um, opening doors to research and mm. new procedures rather than the big flashy operations. No, and, no, no, you should never do that. Okay. Um, and it's completely different. In Syria, all the national surgeons were relatively young and inexperienced, so I could teach them a lot. In Gaza, the national surgeon, there was a plastic surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. These guys were hands down the best surgeons I've ever worked with. These guys were so good, I couldn't teach them anything. I, I, I struggled to keep up with them. But then I can, I'm a bit more experienced in research. I'm a bit more experienced in getting a computer program for them. Things like this. Um, you should never do something they don't need. So don't go in a country like Syria or Gaza where they don't have any internal fixation. They don't have plates. They don't do arthroscopy and teach them arthroscopy skills. 
it's pointless. Hmm. So you've got to make sure that uh, what you're bringing there um, matches what they want yes. and yes. they have the capacity to do it. Yes. So like you said, if they don't have the, the technology, then there's no point. And it's also important that you are somebody who has knowledge about what they are doing. So um, I have I have an idea about this reconstructive surgery. I do this reconstructive surgery myself. I have an idea about flaps because I'm interested in flaps. But if I would be an orthopedic surgeon who only does elective hand surgery, I would be completely misplaced there. I couldn't help them. I would be a hindrance. So it's important that you that you're honest to yourself and 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 and, and uh, make sure that you are also the right person to to be in this context because this context is super complicated and, and it's sometimes difficult to do everything with nothing which you have to do yeah um so you've mentioned that it's really important to find the right fit um how does that work with finding the right mission to go on and all of that process um well with msf you msf is a huge it's like a company they have seventy thousand employees they are oh, wow. massive it's a huge organization so first of all, go with a big organization because they can fit your profile to a mission where they need you. That's important. So I do have everybody in MSF has a career manager um, who deals with deployment of surgeons or nurses or logisticians. And then they, I tell them when I have time and then they offer me various missions. I try now to go back to the same place more often because again it's about being sustainable and it's about um, consistency so i get to know these guys i get to know the patients these patients get treated over years i get to know the nurses i get to know the people i can find my feet much faster when i go back again obviously you want to go to other in other situations as well because because that's also a reason to go because it's an adventure and you can see places which you can't see anywhere else but but uh, if you have more time, then this is very important because that pushes a mission forward because you have a different doctor every six weeks who has different ideas, who wants to have different guidelines, who wants to use different antibiotics. That's a nightmare. It's a nightmare for everyone. It's for, the, for them, for the patients, for the surgeons, for everyone. You also really, really get to like them. It's so bad and so sad when you leave. <laughs> All you want is go back <laughs> because they're so nice, usually. You, know, you get a lot out of it. Yeah, for sure. And so when you have been back to a place that you have done an initial mission, what sort of changes have you noticed directly? Well, in Gaza, it was in Gaza, it was amazing. So three years ago, I was the first time for the first time. And we only just started this reconstructive surgery. And it was, it there was nothing. We didn't have an image intensifier. We didn't have vacuum dressings. We didn't have basic stuff. So we could only do very basic wound deprivement and couldn't do anything major. Now, three years later, these guys are doing the most complex, most difficult operations with really good success. So that mission on that project uh, uh, developed uh, amazingly. But also because there was one uh, colleague of mine there for nearly one and a half years, more or less the whole time, and that's super important because that allows them to develop you know 
Um, so that was some missions get closed. So Syria, for example, I would love to go back, but that's closed because somebody got abducted. So they had to close the mission and get everybody out. So it's, I wanted to go to Afghanistan. I was supposed to go to Afghanistan to start the reconstructive unit in Kunduz. But because of the Taliban coming in after the Americans left, everything was closed there as well. So it's a bit volatile, of course. You know. Sometimes it gets much better, sometimes it gets much worse. How do you deal with that volatility and the security issues? So again, MSF is a huge uh, apparatus. They are, they, are, they are really, really good uh, with logistical issues. If there's any risk, they can get you out because they have the means, they have the money, they have the organization, they have the contacts. That's why it's so important that you go with a big organization. Um, there's really strict security rules with MSF, so you get uh, you have to have a phone with you all the time. You have a walking perimeter which you can't leave. So in Syria we were not allowed to leave the hospital compound. In Gaza we were allowed to walk, but only during the day. Things like this. And they can get you out if there's any drama. So there's safety rooms. There's uh, uh, that windowless rooms that that are more or less bomb shelters. All these things. Mm. That's why it's important you go with a big organization. If you go with a really small organization, if you have to organize everything, that's when it gets dangerous. That's way more dangerous than going with MSF or the International Red Cross or any of the big organizations. And did you find you had to use some of those like bunkers in the time that you were there? I was never really, I never really thought I was in danger. In Syria, we had gunfights outside the hospital walls every oh, day. Wow. Okay. And the first two nights you lie under the bed, but then you get so used to it. And then one day I even got, uh, I'm doing, did some exercise outside with my headphones in. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, maybe don't put the headphones in and don't do your skipping rope exercises with the back to the door because there might be people coming in with guns. <laughs> and then you can't hear them and you can't see them. But it's just a measure of, I really didn't feel unsafe. Um, maybe I'm completely naive and maybe... Maybe I should feel more unsafe, I don't know. But it's they are really good. Um, they We had security briefings every evening when, when, when the situation was unstable. You know, there's messaging. You are in good hands. So it was a combination of just good logistical planning mm. as well as mm. a degree of desensitization almost. Just you get uh, used to the You get used to everything. Noise. Humans get used to everything. Humans are the most uh, adaptable things on the planet. I was just going to ask, uh, like you have a son, was it? Mm, mm. Yeah. Like how do they view you going over? Do they feel any worry for you? How do you kind of allay those fears for, for loved ones? Um, then they never said anything. Yeah. Because they knew I always wanted to do it. And I waited until my son was 18, so nearly grown up. Okay. Um, um, before that, it would be difficult, I can imagine. Um because school and you know you leave for a long time it's always difficult um, but it would have been also difficult with my career because because it took me a long time to negotiate two months off every year and that's that's why there is not a lot of mid-career surgeons doing this because not many can get the time off or can afford to take the time off um, that's interesting you say that because at least I have the impression that um, people who have an interest in humanitarian surgery mm. uh, would train up 
and then they would just go and do it. But it sounds like it's a much longer process to become established and have the capacity. It is, and, and, and also humanitarian surgery is, is nearly its own specialty. So you really need to be able to do everything with nothing. Mm. And you need to be able to improvise. And you, So in Syria we had one x-ray machine. That's it. There is no uh, ultrasound, MRI, CT scan. There's an x-ray machine and a stethoscope. And I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I haven't had a stethoscope in my years for 15 <laughs> years. So I had to learn this again, you know. So it is, you go back to the basics. And this is near, and in Australia, we get a patient in who is injured and, and he's stable. Then we observe them, you know. We put them on the ward, we observe them, we put them in ICU. All these things you can't do in humanitarian medicine. You can't observe someone. If you think they need an operation, they need an operation. Because observation, unless you sit there and watch them, It's way too unstable. It's way too... Uh, you don't know how good the observer is, if this is a nurse or a doctor. Um, so you can't do that. Plus, you don't have an ICU where you can intubate people often. You need to... This patient needs to be stabilized. Um, so... Um, okay, what kind of strategies did you have to overcome the it's, improv side of things? Yeah, you read a lot. And you, and you start your own library. And you start your... Uh, on videos shortcuts to <laughs> and you get them all offline as well because internet is not often reliable hard so you have i have this big hard drive with mm -hmm. all the books i want to look up plus msf is also good with telehealth so you can contact somebody 24 7 who is an expert in that specialty connectivity um, is not an issue with that sorry connectivity getting access to uh usually they ha they have really good internet but not everywhere obviously and not all the time but usually it's okay so that's what they that's why they bring a big team in of logistician technicians who sort these things out um but it is really nearly its own specialty and there's now more and more young surgeons mainly from south america who do msf for a living they they graduate they become specialist surgeons and then they join a humanitarian organization because they usually pay a little bit more than they would get paid in their home country. Really? So you have this generation of young surgeons now, mainly from South America, um, who who are humanitarian surgeons because they do MSF for a living. And 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 the MSF has a hospital in has has a training center now in South Africa where you learn skills specifically for humanitarian missions. Because as a general surgeon you also need to be able to deliver a baby. Because you're often the gynecologist and obstetrician as well. Yeah. And all these things we don't learn anymore. So we don't, we don't learn how to deal with gunshot wounds because we don't have gunshot wounds. Right? We don't learn many open abdominal operations anymore because we do lots of things laparoscopically. So it's, it's, it's a skill we, it's nearly its own specialty, really. Um, and how have you found the process of learning, you know, like, how to treat a gunshot wound and things like that that we wouldn't really encounter much in Australia. Lots of watching YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not YouTube, but Wu maybe. Um, and talk to the talk to the nationals. Don't come in and be the big guru because that you, you are that's not what you are. The national surgeons usually have way more experience. Um, and they might not be as Their training might not have been as organized as our training or as of high standard, but 
they can deal with common things and common things are gunshot wounds in this context so they can deal with these things also gunshot wounds you learn very fast when they're stable you have time and it's, then it becomes a normal laparotomy or a normal deprivement whatever We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time, either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events. <laughs> <laughs>